welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, one possible solution to severe droughts. California just came out of one of its worst droughts in recent history. Given changes in weather patterns caused by climate change, finding new sources of drinking water has become a pressing need, not just for California, but for countries all over the world that are experiencing extreme weathers, including droughts. So if you live in London or San Francisco, a new source of water is everywhere fog. We know there's moisture in it because after a foggy night, there are often puddles under certain trees or on your lawn chairs left out. We'll talk with Cal State University scientist Dan Fernandez about his work capturing moisture from fog and how that may turn into something even you can do in your own backyard. Plus science notes and phenomena from Joe Jordan. Stay tuned and if you'd like to email us, Go to radioplanetwatch at gmail.com and send us an email. You can also check us out on Facebook at Planet Watch. Check us out. All right, we've got a newscast from our intrepid reporters, and we're going to start out with something from Cade Pastelnik, who tells us that not only is uh, the United States experiencing some pretty drastic potential cuts in science funding, but the other parts of the world are looking hungrily at our scientists. And these facts are retrieved from The Guardian. Just days after the second round of the French presidency concluded, France's new president, Emmanuel Macron, initiated a call to action and urged American scientists to come to France in order to pursue their innovative ideas. Ever since the inauguration of American president, Donald Trump, threats to cut funds and halt progress for the EPA and NASA have created an uneasy atmosphere for scientists in America. Macron believes the cure to this scare is for scientists, researchers, and entrepreneurs of all kinds to abandon their regressive administration and embrace a far more open-minded government that welcomes environmental change. The French president stated that, I want all those who today embody innovation and excellence in the United States to hear what we say. From now on, from next May, you will have a new homeland. France. Macron went on to label his plea as a solemn call in order to maintain a collective international stance on climate change. During the Paris Climate Agreement in November 2015, France advocated a double in use of solar and wind technology by 2022. Though the United States was originally on board with a more progressive approach during the Obama administration, France fears that the now Trump administration will back out of the Paris Agreement due to their muzzling of the environmental voice in America. Macron's bold statement has certainly gathered the attention of U.S. scientists and the American media. It is now up to them whether or not to take up the French president's offer. So it seems as if they are doing something similar to what America did when the Soviet Union collapsed, trying to get scientists from over there. Indeed, and um, there's always been a shifting of the center of intellectual pursuit uh, around the world as science has progressed. And after World War II, there was also quite a few scientists from Europe who came here, including Einstein at the end. So um, another pattern perhaps shifting again back to Europe. And I noticed a pattern in these stories that Tommy Martin's going to read the next one, uh, also in includes Europe. Yeah, yeah, this one's about the UK and their energy source, which is turned to nearly a quarter of solar power. On Friday, the UK produced 24.3% of their electricity needs out of solar panels, setting a new record as Britain basked in sunshine on its hottest day of the year. The national grid reported 8.7 gigawatts had been generated by lunchtime, <laughs> surpassing the previous record of 8.48 gigawatts set earlier in May. Renewable energy has taken off in Britain as they work to meet European Union targets and phase out coal power plants by 2025. Uh, last Friday, coal accounted for a mere 1.4% of energy generation as solar and wind made huge strides dominating the energy supply. In April, Britain went uh, its first full day without any coal power since the Industrial Revolution, sparking optimism for the future of renewables. 
Amazing story. Thank you for that, Tommy yeah. Martin. And you're hearing from our interns. We have three new interns from Cabrillo College. Tommy has been with us, uh, but we have Caroline King and Cade Pastelnik joining our team. You'll be hearing more of their reporting as the weeks go on here at Planet Watch. We're very happy. And thank you to Roland Reveille Scholarship for um, supporting these interns' participation in Planet Watch. So Caroline King has this next story. Uh, yeah, this one is here on our soil um, from ScienceDaily.com. Researchers from Loma Linda University have conducted a new study on ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The report, released on May 12th, finds that a simple change in your personal life could have a large environmental impact. If Americans choose to eat beans instead of beef, we could reach 50 to 70% of our goal for greenhouse gas reduction targets by the year 2020. Beef is the most greenhouse gas intensive food to produce and is a highly inefficient use of U.S. agricultural land. Currently, 400 million square acres of U.S. land is used for animal agriculture. Switching from animal-sourced foods to plant-sourced foods on a national scale could free up approximately 40% of this land. Currently, more than one-third of Americans purchase imitation meat, food products made from plant-based ingredients but made to look like and taste like animal products. This trend suggests eating animal-sourced meat is no longer a necessity and making the switch will be necessary in order to avoid the worst of climate change impact. Thank you, Caroline King, for that story. And uh, an interesting side note, there was a program and an article all about meat grown in laboratories that has nothing to do with animals except their cells. And, it, and the idea of that, for me, turns my stomach. But there are some people who say it would save lots and lots of carbon emissions um, and methane in particular. So um, we'll have to explore that at another show. That reminds me of a dream I had when I was a kid of a, a meat garden. There was a garden out back that had like pot roast growing out of the ground. You must anyway. have been eating too many beans. <laughs> I don't think people are going to switch from meat to beans particularly, but they might switch to other um, products that sort of remind them, like soybean-based uh, meats. We have one more story from uh, one of my students. I teach a broadcast journalism class. That's where my interns are from. And um, Sophia Meng Zhaozhao has a story about how an astronomer is trying to get people out of their homes, away from their televisions, and looking at the stars. And um, we joined this story a little bit mid-process. She um, came from China, and she was not a first English speaker. She was learning English and tried very, very hard. And um, I think you can understand most of what she says. She worked hard on this story, and I wanted to share it with you because Martin Gaskell, the main feature of this story, um, hopefully will be a guest on a future Planet Watch show. And because we're called Planet Watch, why not listen to a short story about watching the skies? Coming up next from Sophia Meng Zhao Zhao. Now, I'm going to join that moon waiting list and interview one planet together. <laughs> what does it look like? A moon like a big brick of cheese. Oh. With little holes in it. Do you see any other planet? We saw Jupiter. Just Jupiter. And the four satellites. Is this your first time see this planet by the telescope? First time for Jupiter, not the moon. Okay, thank you. This is Martin Gasco. He took a few minutes away from adjusting his telescope to tell me why should we pay attention to these planets. Well, we are a part of the universe. And to understand ourselves, I think we need to understand what our place is. We need to know that we're on just one planet, one of many, but really the only one we have and uh, the only one we, we can easily uh, get to. And we need to understand uh, how we came to be here. I'm a believer that, that people need to experience the real universe. It's, it's like relationships. Um, it's, it's much better to have a relationship with a real person rather than just watching somebody on television, for example. And, and so with, with the universe, um, there's a lot we can see through, through a telescope with your own eye when you know what to look for in the sky. Uh, so I, I, think I really recommend seeing the universe, experiencing it for yourself. Professor Gaskell teaches astronomy to around 250 students per quarter. But now, new research shows that more and more young people are spending more time inside watching TVs and surfing the internet instead of looking at the stars in person.
Tonight's event is designed for the general public, and he's especially happy to see so many children attend it. The more people attending stargazing events like this, perhaps the more they will want to learn the planets and stars on their own through the telescopes. And perhaps some of these children will become astronomers in the future. For Planet Watch, I'm Sophia Mangjaja. All right. Thank Yay. you, Sophia. Very Yay, nice Sophia. job. Thank you. Appreciate Great that. Job. It's nice to hear. All right. Well, we're very excited um, to introduce our guest for today's a section of Planet Watch that we do every week. We interview an eminent scientist on something that's a breakthrough, an interesting development that might help our world. And our guest is Dr. Daniel Fernandez. He's a professor at Cal State University where he's taught physics for over 20 years. He's got a PhD from Stanford. He also coordinates and teaches courses in the Environmental Studies Program. One of his big areas of research is collecting water from fog, something that uh, we're very interested in hearing about. So thank you so much for being here with us on Planet Watch. Thank you. And in light of Kay's story earlier, I'd like to say bonjour. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. Don't move to France. That brain drain could be bad for the United States. I, I want to make another statement about that. That was responsible. That influx of scientists from other places and the exchange of information is responsible for the United States innovating as much as it has. And that basic research supports all these pieces of technology that surround us here in the studio. Agreed. Okay. Agreed, yes. So tell us about fog collecting. This sounds like something easy to do, but it probably isn't. Well, um, in some ways it is easy to do um, because it happens all the time, um, whether, we, whether we want, whether we like it or not. Um, basically, when you have fog out there in you know, in the environment around you, and you have wind pushing the fog past something, um, some sort of a screen or something like that, the little droplets will get caught on that, and they'll start dripping down. Happens in trees all the time. Um, matter of fact, if you, you might notice it on a foggy day, where the area under the trees will tend to be wet, whereas the area outside from under the trees will tend to be dry. Because fog doesn't fall, it blows sideways. It takes something to capture it, to intercept it, the little droplets, before they'll fall. And one thing I want to make, uh, one point I'd like to make about fog is that fog is a liquid already. It's not a gas. I often hear people say, do you have to build something that condenses the fog water? The answer is no. The fog water is already condensed. It's already in liquid form on little droplets that are in the air. All you have to do is capture them, which makes it much easier to do what I'll call passive fog collection, which doesn't require an influx of energy. You put up screens. I read once that redwood trees uh, get 10% of their water from fog in the summer, that they need that extra little oomph to stay alive. That's why you only see them along the coast. And um, is it enough water that we could actually bother with out there in the fog bank that, that it might do enough for us? Or would it be more than 10% of our water potentially? You know, it depends on how much water you use, I would say. Considering how much water we use, the average... You know, United States are uses around 80 to 100 gallons a day. Um, you're probably not going to get a significant percentage of that from fog. But if you're going at a more uh, subsistence level, uh, several gallons a day, and you live in a small village and there's fog in the region, you might be able to do something with the fog in that case. Are we talking a couple gallons a day? It's possible. If you have a big enough mesh, it's about area size, really. The bigger the area you have, the more water you could get from fog. An interesting little story I have related to that was uh, one time on a bright sunny day that was following like three solid days of really thick fog, I was standing under a little grove of redwoods and it, it was raining. <laughs> on a sunny day, it was raining under the redwoods because all that fog that had been collected by the needles and then the trees had, was finally coming down. There's sort of this delay. Exactly. And if you look closely under, um, you know, just a little microscope or something bigger, um, you see the little grooves in the redwoods leaves that funnel the water down to the roots so they are actually watering themselves. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the shape and size and what does it look like because we're in radio. How does your fog collector, what does it look like and how does it work? Sure. Um, well, um, the type of fog collectors that I build and deploy are known as standard fog collectors and you could actually see some pictures on them. I'll, I'll be creating a website. It's rather rudimentary right now, but if you go to BaysideFogCollectors.com, um, you could actually see some pictures of them. Um, I'm still working on that website, so by the end of the summer, it should be 
more ready for prime time. Can we post it on Facebook as we speak? So if people sure. are following along, they can check it out. Yeah. Um, That's Planet Watch. If you look on Facebook, you can find us. Exactly. And we're live, so if you want to see how what Dan looks like. He's a nice way, guy with a nice t-shirt on. We should remind people of our uh, interactive uh, email that you can get a hold of us here during this interview. RadioPlanetWatch at gmail.com. If you have a question about fog collecting or anything else that Dan's involved with, good time to ask is before the show's over. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, he won't be here to answer, and we'll just make it up. So. <laughs> But basically, I'll actually hold up some of the mesh that I use, so those of you who are on um, the video can see it. This is a mesh that's actually um, produced in Chile. It's uh, known as a Rochelle mesh that has a certain shade coefficient, 35%, which means it has about 35% coverage. It looks like that like fabric that you use in landscaping when you're trying to shade your plants. Yes, yeah. it is. It is very much like that. Now, why this specific one? This is the, the type that uh, was used um, and established as the international standard. So that if I'm collecting some data using this type of mesh in a one square meter area, um, I can compare it to somebody else in any other part of the world who's collecting it. And we know that we're talking apples and apples, which is always important in science. And how big of a, a mesh collector do you have to have for like a gallon of water? How, how wide? Well, it depends on the fog event itself. So I'm more look at it, um, how much time would you have to have a certain fog collector deployed to get a gallon of water? Um, when my fog collectors are one square meter, so one meter by one meter, which is about, if you think about a meter, it's a little more than three feet, for those of you who are not metrically minded. Um, and that fog collector that I have, which is that three by three feet, if you like, uh, stands up, uh, the bottom of it is about six feet tall, the top of it's about nine feet tall. So it stands on a couple poles to get it above the ground so that it actually uh, receives the wind better than it would otherwise if it's closer to the ground because usually close to the ground, the wind gets weaker. And you want the wind to be able to blow through it. And you want to orient this, uh, this square of fog mesh so that it's perpendicular to the, to the direction that the wind is blowing. So it's blowing the fog through the mesh. And then what happens to the droplets once it's, they're on that mesh? Where do they go? So what happens is the mesh is oriented such that the droplets are going to, as they get bigger and bigger, and they're going to get bigger as more and more droplets accumulate. They're going to coalesce. They're going to get heavier and heavier to the point where they can't be supported by the mesh. And ideally, actually, they'll just drip down, not even be droplets anymore, but they'll actually drip down, kind of form a little layer on that mesh. And they'll run down into a trough that's down below. And then the trough is angled so that the water will all flow down one side of it. So then you can have some sort of a receptacle there to either capture the water for some purpose or in my case, I have a rain gauge there that actually measures the amount of water passing through every, every few minutes, sends a signal to a little data logger chip, and then I come back and look at how much fog I've gotten over the past several weeks. Sounds like something you can make yourself at home, not, not to undercut anybody's patent. <laughs> right. If this is, it's super low tech. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just a plastic sheet of mesh and some poles, probably PVC if you have them lying around. You could. PVC uh, vibrates a little too much in the wind for the standard. So uh, copper pipe is what I use to put the mesh in. Mm -hmm. um, and then I support it with some bigger um, galvanized pipes that will tend to corrode less, particularly in the coastal areas here. Then I have to support it with guy wires to keep it up and then have a trough underneath it. It is something somebody with a little bit of um, technical savvy could build. Um, matter of fact, on that website, um, I will put, be putting directions up probably by the end of the summer so that if somebody wanted to build it, they could. And if they didn't want to build it, I'll build it for them and they could buy it from me. It's a company called Bayside Fog Collectors. Mm. So I want to encourage people to do this because I think it encourages love of science, which is important. Mm. Yeah. So if you don't build it, he will come. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I heard a movie about that once. So how did you come up with this idea? Were you like out in the fog and your hair got wet? It's <laughs> a really good question. Um, I wish I could say I came up with the idea of fog collection. And when I first thought of it, I thought I did come up with it to find out that I was far from that. Darn. So I was actually at a meditation retreat and it was hot and um, I uh, wanted to cool down and I was in a tent and it was probably 100 degrees outside. So I was trying to figure out ways to cool down. So I thought, oh, can I shade the tent, put you know, a towel over it? That didn't help. It was still hot. So then I thought, well, if I put a wet towel on it, it would start to evaporate and kind of produce like a little natural air conditioning in the tent. 
And um, that's actually kind of how air conditioners work. It's more complicated than that. But like a swamp cooler? Kind of like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. A little swamp cooler. And so that, helped, that started to help. Then I just started thinking about water and the fact that I live in Monterey, which was not where this retreat was. In Monterey, we tend to be cool and foggy, and we have a water issue. And so I started putting the two of those together and thinking, wow, I wonder if you can get the water out of the fog. And I spent the next few days of this meditation retreat you know, you're not supposed to be doing this, but kind of thinking about, wow, I wonder if I'm the first one to ever think of that. And, you know, and, and I came, when I got back home and onto, onto dry land, so to speak, I contacted, I uh, did some internet research and found out there was a nonprofit called FogQuest that is doing this and deploying these, and they've been doing it for a long time. So I contacted them, and they're very helpful in getting me started um, on this research, and I still work with them. Fantastic. What a, what a great idea. You know, it's science is something we think of happens, you know, through in the lab or in some controlled environment, but sometimes it can happen at a meditation retreat when you're uncomfortable in your tent. Exactly. <laughs> so great By the stuff. way, uh, that, Dan has a TED Talk. If you just Google, you know, or DuckDuckGo, Dan Fernandez TED Talk, those four words, uh, he starts with this meditation retreat thing and then somehow segues that into talking about fog, I guess the way he just did for us. By the way, I'm guessing if it was 100 degrees, that retreat was probably up at Vina in far northern California. It or- was It was in um, uh, about an hour and a half from Fresno in a place called North Fork, which is mm, the geographic okay. center of the state of California okay. in the Sierra foothills. How balanced. <laughs> oh, it was beautiful, <laughs> but hot. But very hot. I've been in those foothills. They're hot. Yeah. Exactly. And what other parts of the world could benefit from this technology? I know Santa Cruz, where we're sitting, is quite a foggy place. Monterey's even more so. I think mm-hmm. you had, in Pacific Grove, the most foggy days, in consecutive foggy days, of any town in the United States. Right, right. Yeah. Well, there's certainly places in the United States. Of course, San Francisco is known for its fog. Um, very well. And we actually have a collector there, too. Uh, one of the buildings at San Francisco State, one of my collaborators works there. Um, but other countries, there's many other countries that have significant fog. And I would say places that have fog are often coastal, but they're not always by the coast. Um, sometimes they're near the tops of mountains, and you can get fog near mountaintops. And you, you see pictures of that. It looks like there's a cloud on the mountain. Well, one definition of a cloud is a fog that touches the ground. So if the mountain is some of the ground and there's a cloud touching it, that's fog. And very often you get some of the best fog events when you have hilly areas near uh, coastal areas. An example is the coast of Chile, which is where a lot of the research that was started uh, that I do came from. And that's considered a Mediterranean climate like California's in that it can be quite dry? Parts of it are, parts yeah. Parts of it are. Especially as you head towards the uh, central and northern central part of the country. And if you don't know Chile, it is the longest country in the world. It is incredibly long. It's over, I don't know, it's around 2,500 miles long. Very narrow, maybe, you know, 60, 70 kilometers wide in some spots. Some spots a little more, some a little less. But it's a really long coastal country. If you like to surf, if you like the ocean, it's a great country to go to because they have a lot of coastline. And they have a lot of hills near the coastline. And I just recently visited there for the fog research I'm doing to look at some of the places where they've collected fog over the past few decades. And it's pretty amazing um, what a little bit of altitude, we're talking 2,400 feet, will do when you're close to the ocean. Um, You could be, as Joe mentioned uh, earlier, talking about the redwoods, bright sunshine outside of this foggy area. You walk into the fog, and if there's any trees there, they are just dripping water. I put my I have videos, maybe I could give you one to post, where I put my hand against the tree trunk and water's just flowing down from the tree on my hand and dripping down. It was just incredible. That's, so That's great. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I was in Lima, Peru once, and on the hills, mountains around there, you saw these mysterious structures on the top. And I kind of guessed and was told that, yeah, indeed, those are also fog collectors. Do you know about that? Yeah, Peru is actually another country where a lot of fog research and fog collection takes place. In, many, in some cases, it's research, and in other cases, it's practical purposes. People are watering the gardens in their yard with water they're collecting from fog. Wow, that's incredible. mm -hmm. You're tuned to Planet Watch. In case you just joined us, we're talking with Dr. Dan Fernandez of Cal State University, Monterey Bay, and he is hot on the trail of fog collecting. 
for drought-stricken areas, which uh, is a great solution. Seems a very low-tech one to a problem that's going to be more and more consistent with climate change. By the way, just a note on the CSU system, the Cal State University system that Dan works in. Um, around here, we used to call it, it, they took over the campus of a lot of the land at Fort Ord, and so we called it Cal State UFO. Uh, Cal State University, Fort Ord. But anyway, okay. Now it's CSUMB. Yes. So Monterey Bay. <laughs> no more unexploded ordinances in class, right? <laughs> right, right. <yeah. laughs> that used to be a practice range in, oh, yes. in the old days. There's a lot of history there. What's really neat about that, this is a little bit of an aside, um, is the land there, and it, it actually will tie back to fog, but a lot of the land there has not been uh, developed. Um, and so we're being very thoughtful in what we develop and what we don't. There's a lot, there's a national monument there. It's an incredible spot of land because it was under Army's uh, purview for so many years, 75 years. So there's a, it's an amazing place for mountain biking. Sea Otter Classic is the biggest mountain biking event in the world, and it takes place on that land. So, and it's also a really foggy area. So you get this foggy climate that happens. Matter of fact, one story is soldiers used to uh, walk from uh, where they lived inland and they'd cross the fog barrier. So at their homes, it would be foggy and inland, it would be really hot and they'd get all sweaty and hot and then walk home in the, into the fog and they'd get sick because of the big variation in temperature and moisture. You know, because from, from, all the sweat on their body would get really cold when they're walking mm. back into the fog. Mm. So it's an amazing area uh, yeah. ge um, geographically and uh, ecologically. And indeed it is, and one with a lot of fog. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about the future of this research. Um, where is it going? What are the next uh, barriers you're trying to break through to make it um, widely adoptable by mm -hmm. many, many places? Well, um, you know, so funding is always helpful to get <laughs> things cost money, even things that are low, relatively low tech cost money to build and to do right. You want to do the, the research correctly and collect the data correctly. But there's a lot of interest, and I think it's the kind of thing where I'd like to see more citizen science initiatives, where schools, and I get calls from schools all the time saying, hey, can you put a fog collector up at our school? Um, you know, it would engage the students, because when you think about it, looking at water that's collected from fog, there's a big gee whiz factor that happens there. I mean, rain these days is a gee whiz factor, because we don't get it very often. But with fog, even more so. It's like, wow, water from fog. And it, it, it kind of inspires people's imaginations, particularly young people. And um, I think it could be a tool for getting more young people engaged in science and in, in the wonder of science. Um, does it taste any different than your water from the well? A great question. <laughs> um, I would recommend filtering water just like you would from, you know, from many other sources when you drink it. Um, but um, I can say that fog water is being used for some commercial applications. One of them, actually, um, there's a, a place called Hangar One uh, in San Francisco that's making vodka using fog water. So they have installed fog collectors, <laughs> collecting as much water as they can and using it in the process to make vodka. Sustainable no, vodka. That's probably fog, fog, fog. Vodka. vodka. I, know, I know about another. Vodka. I know, it must be a different <laughs> Hangar One. Did there's you just this say vodka? Fog. Uh, <laughs> there's this huge building... <laughs> Not in San Francisco, but it's in the Bay Area at Moffett Field, where I worked for decades at NASA Ames. That's Hangar One, but they're not making vodka there, are they? I don't think it's at NASA Ames. It's further north of there. I don't there. think the government would subsidize that, yeah. Joe. But it's been very successful. It's called Fog Point, and um, they're actually contributing their proceeds to fog research which is fantastic. It's wonderful. What a nice circle, circular event there. So you're tuned to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan and Dr. Dan Fernandez. Uh, we also have our interns here. If you want to chime in with any questions, just put your hand up there. Um, I've actually seen this Instagram account where uh, people submit photos of fog in the Bay Area, and they've all kind of collectively named it Carl the Fog. Oh, yeah. And so uh, mm -hmm. I guess you're, you're collecting Carl. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Fog has its own persona, which is really neat. It, you know, it, that's part of the wonder of fog is that it has a whole um, culture and persona associated with it, which I think adds to the um, excitement of doing science and looking at the fog. 
Well, you know, film, film noir would be nothing without Foggy Night and somebody screaming in the dark with somebody with a trench coat on. And there's a poem I think Joe is going to share about fog, so maybe that's the time to do that if you have it. Sure, I got it in my head, I, I think. Uh, it's a very short one. Uh, but first I wanted to say, cloud scientists must have a thing for names because some of my colleagues at NASA who were down in Australia studying tropical thunderstorms on the northern side of Australia, there was one that showed up every afternoon. Great big thunderhead, and they gave it a name, Hector. Oh, okay, Hector's out there again today, you know, just like it was yesterday. But anyway, okay, so here's the, the poem by the late, great um, American poet, Carl Sandburg, who, by the way, I just looked him up on the web, and he led a fascinating life. I had no idea. He was a very storied character, quite a card. But anyway, um, it's called Fog, and it goes approximately like the following. The fog comes on little cat feet. It sits a while overlooking city and harbor on silent haunches and then moves on. Did I insert a couple of extra words in there? Maybe the a while maybe wasn't actually in there. You, you go look it up. And then while you're at it, look up Paul, uh, I mean, uh, Carl Sandberg also. I don't think the poetry police are going to come arrest you just yet. <laughs> nice, though. And, and so it does evoke a lot of, of uh, wonderful imagery. And, of course, our area wouldn't be quite the same without the fog. There's no danger of over-harvesting either. But there might be, in, in the irony of the way climate change is working, a reduction in fog. Is that mm. correct? You know, uh, the jury's still out on that, but that tends to be what we're believing based upon what we're seeing over the past few decades. And you know, the, the climate models are still, um, some of them, most of them say that we will tend to see reduction in fog um, because as the ocean water warms, one of the sources that drives fog is having a cold ocean and a warm air. Now, as the ocean warms more, that difference can become less great and you don't get the same sort of thermodynamic effects that result in formation of fog. So that's one argument that would say that, you know, perhaps we're going to be getting less fog as, as climate change happens. Now, in truth, what's probably happening, everything's more complex than we often say it or imagine it will be, is some areas may get more fog, some areas may get less fog, and those patterns may also change. So areas that had gotten more fog at one point may later get less fog. So that's probably a more realistic scenario of what could happen. We're going to take a very short break. This is Planet Watch. When we come back, more discussions about fog and other things with Joe Jordan. This is Planet Watch with Rachel Ann Goodman and, and Joe, Jordan. Joe Jordan and Dr. Dan Fernandez from Cal State Monterey Bay talking about harvesting water right out of the air through the fog. And um, we wanted to give out our email once again, so Joe's going to do that. Okay, it's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Oh, and I, uh, in just a moment, I'm going to give you the results of um, the research that our guest last week did, she has checked on people's attitudes about climate change and found um, a percentage for each county in the United States. So we're going to find out what Santa Cruz County thinks about climate change in just a moment after we wrap up this interview, so don't go away. Yeah. I think Kate had a question. Yeah, having this revolve around the people, I noticed that there's been some, there's a parallel between kind of like your, your, fog, your fog converter where you have a, a net that that converts fog into water similar to solar panels how they convert sunlight into energy and just how people are starting to put solar panels on their house to create you know light and energy in their households uh is there any potential for households in monterey bay santa cruz san francisco foggy areas to implement these uh, around their houses so they can use the water as a natural source that's an excellent question and i certainly get a lot of people interested in that idea. Um, the question is, is it worth doing it, you know, in the long run? And it depends on how much water you want and for what purpose. Um, so it could be, but with solar, you know, you can get your whole house energy needs basically met with solar panels if you want, or some significant percentage. You probably won't get a significant percentage of your water needs met by setting up fog collectors. And if you set them up high enough, the neighbors are going to start to complain too. 
there's coastal commission, there's all sorts of practical limitations. Um, so it's not going to be quite like solar in terms of water harvesting. However, there may be some applications where it's useful, like if you're trying to, you know, get a small garden going or re re reforest an area that wouldn't be in your yard, but there are applications for it. But it's not going to be the same as solar in that regard. And how about for agriculture? We're in such a rich area. And, of course, artichokes and things that we grow here in California love the fog. Mm -hmm. But is there a way to harvest the water to, you know, for lettuce and more irrigated crops? You know, that's an interesting question because these mesh can also be used as wind blocks. And so they have a multiple, a dual purpose. Hmm. But, you know, farmers are really concerned about every, every aspect because they don't want to lose their crop. So... You know, I would say introductions can happen maybe on a small scale at times. And one of my colleagues, Sarah Boguskis, who's a researcher at UC Santa Cruz, she actually is looking at the use of fog in agriculture. So there are people doing this work and looking at this. And in Chile, they're actually looking at growing olives with fog, uh, a whole farm on olives, and using that as a marketing uh, tool. Fog-grown olives, fantastic. So that reminds me, Dan told us prior to the show that he's starting a business and well okay i'm wondering if it's not practical for most people to actually get all their drinking water or very much of it from harvesting fog then what is your business for maybe it's for agriculture or gardening or uh, i don't know or are you at liberty to say yes? i'm at liberty to say yeah i keep getting people calling me saying how do i build a fog collector where do i buy a fog collector they're interested in it they're interested in the science of it they want to do it you know maybe they will get enough water to do something interesting with and maybe they'll innovate on their own, which I encourage. I want people to do that. And there is no way to get one right now. Yes, you could build one yourself, but you know, you need a little bit of technical know-how to do it, and not everybody has that or the willingness to do it. So I'd like to be able to supply that and the mesh. So maybe mesh it's kind too. of just a, a just-for-fun educational kit, if nothing else. It could be that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. And maybe the citizen science part is that everyone will fill out your database with where they are and how much fog they collected. There you go. And then you can start counting. That's right. All right. Well, thank you, Dan Fernandez, yeah. for being here with us. But, but before we let you out of here, before you're off the hook, I got a little quiz for you. <laughs> oh, and an you thought you'd get off easy, didn't you? <laughs> an observation. Um, I'm wondering if you or anybody else has ever seen, I'm sure you must have, a fog bow. I have. You know, like a rainbow. And a I have a picture bow. of one even. Yep. And what can you tell us about the fog bow that's different from a rainbow? Well, it certainly is curved like a rainbow. Mm -hmm. The angle is going to be different than the angle for a not rainbow. Not much, not much. Okay, okay. How about the color? The color was less striking than that of a rainbow, the one I saw. Way, way less. I mean, it's mm -hmm. white. It's yeah. basically white. I found out I, I used to do research on all this stuff. I mean, as Dan pointed out earlier, fog is not water vapor, which you can't see. It's condensed water vapor. The particles are much larger. However, they're still teensy-weensy. They're about... 10 microns in size. Mm -hmm. That's 10 millionths of a meter. And so they scatter light in the same way that rainbow size raindrops do, except that they're so tiny that the wave nature of light starts to rear its head and you get this diffraction phenomenon which spreads out the colors so you don't get the nice dispersion into the spectrum that you do with a rainbow. Instead, all the colors kind of mush together as white. But keep an eye out for that. You can see them around here all the time. Or if you're driving or riding a bicycle and a car's coming up behind you, in the, at night in the fog, you will see a gigantic circular fog bow in front of you mm -hmm. in the high beams from that car that's behind you, for instance. So anyway, right. fog bows. I'll send you the picture I took, Joe, from my house. It was, it was great. I was so excited when I saw it. Yeah. It's not to be confused with a sun dog. Yeah, it's different. Those are ice crystals. Okay, just just to be clear, we don't want to misinform anyone on this show. So before um, we go to Phenomenon, I wanted to share from last week, Connie Roser Renouf was our guest. And if you missed that interview, you can go to the archive and go on our Facebook page and find our old shows. You can also go to zbsradio.com. And all of our shows are archived there under Planet Watch. She was our guest, and she was talking about research into how people viewed the issue of climate change and what to do about it and how that varied over geographic areas. And we put out our own poll, and I'm sorry to say we just didn't get that many people to be statistically significant. Um, but she has. She's, she's done lots and lots of data points on this, and so she's narrowed it down to Santa Cruz County. And here's the results she said uh, and gave me. On one end of the spectrum are the alarmed and they are 27% in Santa Cruz County. The next level is concerned, slightly less than alarmed. That's 34%. So if you combine the two, that's pretty large. Majority. That, that's yeah. the majority, alarmed or concerned. Then in the middle is cautious, which is 21%. 
that means you know they're aware but they're not doing anything about it but they're they're willing to be open-minded about learning more then there's disengage which is i don't care <laughs> really it's not my issue um five percent doubtful they don't really think it's true but they might nine uh, percent and then the complete i think it's a hoax dismissive seven percent so when you're spending time trying to convince the 7%, she said it's probably a lost cause, but the disengaged or cautious actually could be moved to concerned and therefore actually want to do something about the issue. Now I have an important and kind of amusing comment about one of the responses we did get from our poll. Uh, one of the pr people who may well be listening right now, because she was listening last week, <laughs> uh, wrote none of the above and i'm saying no that choice doesn't exist and i'm not saying that's just the, against the rules no none of the above is the same as disengaged yeah. okay that so you are disengaged if it's none of the above that's just a rebel who doesn't want to be categorized that, that we we recognize those are the people who don't check the boxes when they fill out the forms and the there loans we get it well thank you so much for playing along um those of you who did and um, we'll do another one of these polls again someday soon where we gauge interest in a particular topic maybe like fog and getting water from the fog um we've, we really appreciate your comments and if you missed you know engaging directly with our guests and you want to write to us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com we can send him your question uh, after the show and i'm sure he'd be happy to answer it yeah and by the way he is a colleague of uh a guest we had uh back on april 23rd, I think. Uh, you can go back to those past shows. It was the singing scientist who brought his guitar in here. Oh, and that reminds me, Dan has a fog song. <laughs> that you thought you'd really get out of it. <laughs> your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to sing us your fog song. But anyway, the guy was Peter Weiss. We interviewed him, and Dan works with him on stuff related to, I don't know, the mysteries of mercury somehow mm -hmm. contaminating the fog that's wafting in here off the pristine oceans. And Anyway, so uh, they work together on stuff. Uh, Peter Wise is at UCSC, Dan's at CSU, MB. <laughs> but um, what about that fog song, Dan? <laughs> well, I, I, when you put me in under that... On pressure like that under the radio, I, I guess I'll have to do it. All right. Oh, you're a good sport. All right. Foggy, foggy night. Paint your palette white and gray. Step out on a summer's day with eyes that see the coming of the cloud. Moisture on the hills coats the leaves and daffodils. Catches breeze and evening chills Collects upon the foliage of the land Aww. Standing yeah. ovation. Standing ovation. <laughs> nice. And that was a nod to, what was the guy who wrote the original there? Right, yeah. Yeah. Starry, starry night. That was the band Star. Ghost Story. There you go. Nice. Well, we have had now two singing scientists on our show. Yeah, and, and that's colleagues. pretty special. One professional, one not. Yeah. Well, we take all comers and we appreciate, um, you know, We'll get on American Idol next <laughs> for the science edition. Well, you know, we, we had a poem now and we had a song. And, you know, I, I'm a firm believer and I always inflict it upon all of my students at whatever level, what I call culture. You know, we, along with our science, we've got to have well, art and culture. So we had plenty of culture in here today and we'll, we'll have more in the future. So we, uh, <laughs> we absolutely do. And we have five minutes left for Joe's Phenomena. If you have any quizzes, more mind-bending um, information for us to take home with us. Yeah, and I, you know, I actually meant to uh, email Dan before this show to say, hey, if you can think of anything, bring it along, because I might be running a little short, so now you're really on the spot. If you can think of any riddles, puzzles, fun oh, facts, God. whatever, or anybody <laughs> else in the room, or or listeners, email us your conundrums or whatever, but I do have something for you. Okay. Now. And it may take a while to develop. This is a really amazing little math thing for you. Say you have a railroad rail that is on absolutely flat ground. Forget about the curvature of the earth or any of that. It's a mile long, and it's tacked down at both ends. Now, somebody sneaks in the middle of the night and solders in an extra foot of rail, so, but it's still tacked down at both ends. So it's along a line that's a mile long on the earth, but now it has to bow up because it's got that extra foot in there, right? It's a mile and a foot long. So what you've got is an arc of a circle that's a mile and a foot long and a cord that cuts across that arc that's exactly one mile long, you know, one foot less. Do you get, do you get the picture here? The question is, how high up in the middle does that rail, that curved rail, bow up above 
the flat rail. And I'll just tell you, everybody who I ask this, they say, oh, gosh, you know, a thousandth of an inch or uh, whatever. Anyway, anybody want to guess? I mean, I think I might not tell the answer until next week, but... Um, and it depends on how much time we end up having to kill here. <laughs> sounds, but, like, sounds like something that could use a little bit of thought. But, yeah, uh, it, it, well, let's think out loud. So yeah. how many feet are in a mile? 5,280. Okay, so, is that so, part of the equation? Well, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. And so how many feet are you going to have in that mile plus a foot? You're going to have 5,281 feet. That that's, I can do. That's the length of the arc of the circle, and then the length of the cord is 5,280. The question is the little stick mm -hmm. <laughs> that's perpendicular to the rail lying along the ground, you know, that connects it to the bowed-up arc at its highest point in the center. How well, high well, is that I'll tell you stick? what I'd start with, Joe. Uh -huh. I'd start by um, calling that, that arc maybe... a. Uh, two parts of a two straight lines a triangle. Maybe that yeah, would start me. Approximate it as a couple of back-to-back -back, uh, Pythagorean theorem. You know, right triangles. That would be easier because if you didn't that. do that, you'd be trying to figure out lots of small <laughs> delineations up until the middle. Yeah. So you'll get a decent approximation if you mm -hmm. do that. You know, the a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Uh, still, you're working with big numbers and teensy-weensy difference between large mm -hmm. numbers, so that's where you kind of almost need numerical techniques and you know trigonometry and all this stuff. But anyway, uh, here, here's a way to think about this. Uh, it's not exactly the same thing, but take two pencils and uh, connect them with a string and pull it taut. Pull the pencils as far apart as you can, but they're still connected by the string. Now move one pencil in towards the other a tiny bit, and what happens to the string? It goes way down. So that's a hint about the answer to this. It's not how you answer it, it's not the answer or directly related, but it, it gives you a sense that the answer to this rail puzzle is going to be quite surprising. So <laughs> stay tuned next week for the suspenseful conclusion to this little... Uh, well, anyway, we still, we still got six minutes left, speaking of oh, numbers. Oh, not quite that much time, but I did want to um, promo the upcoming couple of oh, guests yes, that we're working yes, on. Yes, yes. Paul Hawken recently made a trip to Santa Cruz and gave a phenomenal presentation that Joe Jordan might be able to tell us a little bit about, but we are working on an interview with him. We had to postpone our interview that we thought we had because of his busy travel schedule. He had to go a medal in Europe. Once again, Europe, they're stealing our, our ideas. Um, but he is going to be a guest on the show, and he's going to be talking about his new book called Drawdown, which has 10 things that are the most uh, likely to reduce carbon. And, 100. And, has 100. Oh, he has 100, but yeah. the top 10 group of things are things that would surprise you and one of them or two of them involve family planning and educating girls things you would never have thought were part of that equation and he has complete logic he had like 15 researchers working on this book with him to try to dig out the impacts of all these different policies as well as individual behaviors they weren't just government policies they involved things people could do mm. So he's going to talk about his blueprint, which is really great because he, I think, was frustrated by the usual three things that ended up in a tie, you know, in terms of our ability to do anything about them as a world. So he wanted to find more things so that we didn't end up in a boxed-in state where if carbon tax didn't pass, we're doomed. Uh, he got completely out of energy and looked at other things that move the needle by their... Um, secondary effect. So we're going to talk to Paul Hawken coming up shortly on the show, hopefully next week, but it might be two weeks mm -hmm. from now. The other interview I've already done, which I'm really excited to present, it might be next week, is Jerry Taylor, who is the head of um, an institute that studies climate change and its solutions. And he is the brother of someone who runs the Heritage Foundation, which is the premier enterprise uh, denying... Oh, you mean the Heartland Institute. Heartland Institute, Heartland sorry. Institute. Heartland Institute which just mailed to quote-unquote textbooks to all high school science teachers, pretty and much. college teachers. <laughs> we got them, too. I didn't get one, <laughs> well, because I'm journalism. But uh, anyway, they're trying to pr promote misinformation and, and shoddy science and cherry-pick it. And he was one of those people, and he switched sides. And now his mm. brother's on the other side. And what institute does he uh, head? It's uh, called Niskansen, and it's um, a think tank. Wow. that works meeting with mostly Republican members of Congress. And he feels there's hope in turning them in. They're all just 
closet um, climate scientists at heart, and they actually quite alarmed on the alarm spectrum <laughs> more than they let on, mm-hmm. and that he thinks it's a matter of time before they pretty much all come out and say we need a w- you know to do something. And we talked about what is their way out because they painted themselves into a corner on this issue. By the way, how did you score this guy, uh, this Jerry Taylor? How did you connect with him? Tommy called him up. (laughs) How did you you know about him? Where'd you? I read an article. Cool. cool. uh, That was a fantastic interview with him, and I said that that would be on the Intercept, a podcast I like a lot. So yeah. I thought, well, what a great thing to have, and and I we called him up, and lo and behold, and how did he, you score Paul Hawken? Um, again, persistent uh, interns giving him a call, and he's on a book tour. Yeah. He's coming to Santa Cruz and, and wanted to share with our audience. So we're very grateful that they are going to do that for and us. And I had met him and had dinner with him once in San Francisco. I was standing outside this vegan restaurant in San Francisco called The Millennium. And uh, and he walks all by himself. And I said, hey, you want to have dinner with us? And so it was a very interesting evening. But uh, that was many years ago. That's right. Well, once again, this is Planet Watch on uh, many stations. One in Columbus, Ohio. One in Santa Cruz. And maybe in your town, if you're listening, driving through one of our areas and want to promote it in your town. We are um, distributing on prx.org as well as Audioport. So if you'd like to check us out, go there. Planet Watch is produced at KSCO AM 1080. Special thanks to our engineer Jason and our interns, Tommy Martin, Cade Pastelnik, and Caroline King. Special thanks to Eugene Beer in Columbus, Ohio for running our program there. For more information and archives of past shows, see our Facebook page. Go to Planet Watch Radio. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan. Let's keep an eye on the sky. (laughs) And thanks for listening.